0: I'm personally hoping that this pandemic um, helps us all realize why, how we're all connected and why each member in our society plays a specific role. Um, And you don't necessarily have to have a college education or have aspirations to be a doctor to be someone that's worthy of um, access to resources in the U.S.
1: Hello and welcome to Who Belongs, a podcast from the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. My name is Mark Abizade, one of the hosts of the show, and in this episode we're looking at the reality facing undocumented immigrants and migrant farm workers in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll hear from three researchers who discuss some of the recent and upcoming articles that look at ice raids targeting immigrant communities despite shelter-in-place orders as well as the conditions of farm workers who are putting themselves at risk in order to keep the country fed. The guests are Seth Holmes, a cultural and medical anthropologist and physician, and a faculty member in the Division of Society and Environment at UC Berkeley, as well as in the Medical Anthropology Joint Program with UCSF. The second guest is Miriam Magana Lopez, who is a research and policy analyst at the Institute for the Study of Societal Issues at UC Berkeley and a volunteer organizer with the Minnesota Immigrant Rights Action Committee. The third guest is Vera Chang, a doctoral student in the Environmental Science Policy and Management Program at UC Berkeley and a researcher at the Berkeley Food Institute. Vera's doctoral research focuses on agro food systems, human rights, and social change. Here was our conversation. I guess this will be for uh, Seth and Miriam. Um, you just had this article recently come out in The Guardian and there's going to be another version that's coming out soon in the American Journal of Public Health that looks at uh, ICE raids and you show why these raids undermine public health. And so maybe you can just begin uh, telling us a little bit about that article and what you're
0: arguing there. Yeah, so I would say that the main argument is that ICE rates are not essential during this time. We're being told by local, state, and federal government to stay home and to limit movement. And the fact that um, ICE is still going to communities, looking for people, um, and then moving them from their homes into a crowded detention facility is not conducive to um, controlling the spread of COVID-19. And uh, the reason that we actually got started Reading, uh, writing this article was because I saw that on March 20th, I actually bid for 45,095 masks, which are the masks that uh, healthcare providers don't have to protect themselves as they're treating patients. And through a uh, quick exchange in emails, Beth suggested that we write this article just because we found it to be super unjust that this organization that is conducting non-essential work during this time um, feels like they should get these masks for their workers when healthcare care providers weren't even having them on the first place. And yeah, so that's basically what we wanted to cover. in the article, the American um, Journal of Public Health article, we further elaborate that point by focusing not just on immigration rates, but also how detention and deportation uh, is not conducive to controlling covid nineteen and it's actually um, spreading more because now you're having ICE ICE agents going into communities, interacting with community members, taking community members from their homes to um, ICE detention, and then deporting them, um, crossing different lines, Um, and then further also putting at risk people who are also currently in detention. Uh, And so for those reasons, um, we wanted to write the article uh, because we think it's super important for people to realize what's going on in that this isn't something that should, in my opinion, be happening ever, but especially during a pandemic when people are at risk, um, we really need to be cautious about um, what is happening and, and uh, what is considered essential and, and what shouldn't be.
1: Seth, do you wanna add anything to that and um, maybe elaborate those three points that you have in your upcoming article about how specifically these raids undermine uh, public health?
2: Sure, so actually the week before I had written an article with a colleague who's also a physician and an anthropologist, Liza Bookbinder at UCLA. We did interviews with nurses and doctors across the country about the lack of personal protective equipment that is not just about protecting doctors and nurses, it's also about protecting all the future patients they'll interact with. And it's about protecting our health system that is um, needing to take care of, a lot, of lo- a lot more people than we're used to right now. And we did some background research into ways, uh, specific decisions that the Trump administration had made that led to these um, shortages of N95 masks, testing equipment, um, ventilators, and the preparedness for epidemic and pandemic response. So then when Miriam emailed me Um, or messaged me about the 45,095 masks that um, ICE had bid on to be sent to all their different field offices. We, there were multiple reasons that um, we felt like we needed to write together about this at that time. Um, We wrote about the ways in which first of all, ICE raids disrupt community lead to worse health already all the time. They separate families, they cause um, stress levels that make people's um, immune systems not work as well, etc. But then during a pandemic, when everyone's being told to stay in one place, um, to shelter in place, the ice raids are forcing the movement of people. Um, So they're disregarding shelter in place, um, which then can lead to the spread of the virus, SARS-CoV-2. And then on top of that, they're disregarding all the calls to practice physical distancing. A group of ICE agents go together to raid a community, and then they move people to overcrowded detention facilities. And there's so much evidence of the overcrowding of these detention facilities that are the perfect Horrible situation for the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that leads to COVID-19 And then they're deporting people and there have already been multiple documented cases of People who have been deported later testing or at that time finding out that they were positive for COVID-19 therefore we have documentation that the federal government is sending COVID-19 to other communities and spreading the spreading the virus um and then on top of that the ice is using n95 masks that we don't have enough to protect our own um, healthcare care workers on the front line and our own health system that we all need so in multiple ways it became clear that the federal government on some level is choosing to put everyone at risk Um, in order to do these ice raids in all these multiple ways. By spreading the virus more because they're not allowing shelter in place, by spreading the virus more because they're not allowing physical distancing, and by spreading the virus more, which can be deadly for multiple people, um, by utilizing N95 masks and not providing them to doctors and nurses. The federal government could make very different decisions and that's what we called for. One would be give M95 masks to doctors and nurses, not ICE agents, stop um, ICE raids, stop detention, and stop deportation. Um, All of those things are important. The other reason we both wanted to write about this is Miriam's involved in the Minnesota Immigrant Rights Action Committee, um, and they've been doing um, protests of detention at this time while physically distancing. So they've been doing protests in cars, for example. And then I've been in touch with um, research collaborators who are immigrant farm workers themselves who have been telling me that it's confusing to them to get a letter that says that they're essential workers, but they still hear that people are being detained, deported, and raided. So what does that mean to have a letter that says the federal government tells you you're essential and you should still be able to work when you have evidence on the TV and in in the news that people like you are not being treated as though they're essential at all. So all those things made it feel like we needed to take a break from everything else we were doing and and write about this at this time.
1: Do you have updates on the raids since you wrote the article about uh, if these actions are ongoing, if they're still happening in California in different places, or if, um, if people are listening to recommendations like the ones that you listed, that these need to be stopped for public health reasons, and that these resources need to be put into hospitals where uh, medical care workers need them more than uh, these uh, ICE agents.
0: The bid that I did put for the 45,000 masks, they did get, there was some backlash from the public and they did um, end up canceling that bid. Um, And in regards to raids, we know they're still happening. I don't know, Seth, if you know of any specific cases?
2: Well, since we wrote the article for The Guardian, um, we followed up with more research for the American Journal of Public Health article that's on a similar topic with more evidence about the health risks and um, we found that even though ICE made a public statement that during this pandemic their top priority is safety and health and well-being of everyone, um, the day they made that statement they did three raids in multiple places including in New York, the area with the highest uh, prevalence and incidence of COVID-19. So There, It seems to be that the federal government is making one set of statements to the public, but acting entirely the opposite and continuing to put people at danger, at risk. So we hope that both the Guardian piece can push public opinion some and that the article in the American Journal of Public Health might push health departments and public health officials to push back on um, the other parts of the government that are engaging in and supporting these kinds of raids, detentions, and deportations.
1: Over the weekend, I saw that the um, that the administration was talking about cutting. Uh, the salaries of some migrant workers because they wanted to try to they, they're saying they want to try to help the agricultural industry, which is being harmed. Another thing is that they've ended asylum policies at the border, um, you know, invoking this crisis. I wanted to know if you were concerned if they would use this crisis as um, an excuse or a kind of a justification to be able to intensify their targeting of certain immigrant groups,
0: Something that I personally worry about is that there is so much happening and there's so much fear about that pandemic and people are bombarded with news articles about it every day that it's very easy for the administration to sort of do things without people noticing. Um, and as you mentioned with the uh, the new process for assailant applications, people aren't even given a chance there. Um, come to the border and they're automatically sent back without having any sort of application process, the reason being that um, to stop the spread of COVID-19 and um, 19 and using that as the excuse to not process this. Um, so it is terrifying to see people who are fleeing violence and wanting to come to the U.S. Um, and apply for, um, you know, some of their applications uh, to be refugees here in the U.S. aren't, giving, aren't getting that opportunity. Um, And I also did read that article that you said, I think it was an NPR article that was talking about reducing the wages of farm workers as a way to sort of help and support the um, agriculture industry. And I was very upset to read it because it's, I mean, we see that this always happens it's the workers that always get targeted in the name of saving this industry when um, we're also seeing that the New York, Times posted an article that stated that farm workers are considered essential, but now because there are so many people who are unemployed and in desperate situations, they're sort of using this opportunity to reduce their wages because I think people will still take the jobs because something is better than nothing. Um, So I think I do have a fear of um, uh, policies being changed to um, drastically target immigrants because there's so much happening that it's hard for people to notice and to pressure for, you know, for it to not happen. And um, and the the uh, policies at the border uh, with people seeking um, refugee status, like that happened without any sort of, it sort of happened without a lot of people knowing about it. Um, and because people don't know about it, people can be outraged and people have so many other things to worry about that no one's really um, looking for it. Um, So that's something that I've been thinking a lot about.
2: I mean, one thing I might add is, the whole proposal is not actually even to protect the agriculture industry because farm workers are critical core part of agriculture. So the proposal itself is to protect agro-corporations or um, large farm owners but it's not actually, if it were to protect the entire industry, it would also be protecting farm workers. And if the federal government is calling them essential workers, but then proposing that they can make under the minimum wage at the same time, they're not actually protecting agriculture or even the agriculture industry. They're they're really protecting the owners of the large corporations and the large farms that are involved, um, which which in the long run won't work. Um, We all of us need to be able to eat during a pandemic and we need to be able to eat after a pandemic And if we don't protect farm workers If we don't protect them both with things like masks and the ability to physical physically distance um, but also if we don't protect them with enough funds enough salary that they can support their families and buy enough food for their own families then none of us will be able to eat our food system will be in jeopardy
1: maybe we can elaborate a little bit more on that point uh, but first address um, the question of safety for the farm workers I understand there's like two and a half million um, migrant farm workers in the United States and um, you know who are considered essential so what kind of um, protective gear are they you know what does it look like on 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 the farms where they're working right now how are they physically distancing? How are they uh, staying safe? And what kind of uh, resources are they being provided so they can um, carry out their work? Vera, maybe you can take this question.
3: Just just to lay out some background on the issue, um, farm and food workers have historically through present times been systematically excluded from federal and state health and safety protections. So there's nothing new about that part. Um, There's the lack of protections combined with like a lack of enforcement of the few existing laws remaining has resulted in really grave inequalities for farm workers for a long time. This has resulted in such inequities as farm the farm worker fatality rate being five times that of the average American worker. So the difference now with the pandemic is that the conditions have just become exponentially worse. And there is a confluence of reasons why. Like workers have no way often to socially distance or shelter in place. So farm workers, labor... Shoulder to shoulder in mega processing plants. Workers are packed into cramped school buses sitting side by side. There could be up to 50 workers in a bus. Workers often share not only housing with strangers, but also beds with strangers. There's little ventilation. Sometimes there's no sanitation. Um, and for many workers, which Seth and I discussed in the article, absence from work due to illness risks termination. And these are workers that already have really high rates of hypertension and respiratory impairments, which are conditions that are linked with severe COVID-19 disease.
1: Uh, And so what happens in the case, let's say a worker gets sick, you know, what happens to that worker? Do they continue working even if they're showing symptoms suspected of maybe having contracted uh, COVID? Or are they, um, you know, are they isolated? Because there's also that question of of people who handle food that gets consumed.
0: So the majority of farm workers do not have uh, insurance sponsored through their employer. Maybe they don't have health insurance at all. And so when people get sick, they um and a lot of them are in situations where if they don't work they don't get paid um and so even if they are sick some workers are forced to continue to go to work to provide for their family and as Vera mentioned um if you don't show up because you're sick and you, the outcome is that you're going to be fired some workers are forced to do that and if they have no protections or nothing that um the their employer is doing to make sure that they're sick that they're saying Safe and healthy, um, then at the end of the day, we're all going to um, be impacted by that, by people who are handling our food, who can't afford to stay home, who can't afford to go see a doctor when they're sick and are sort of um, having to work through that illness. Um, And obviously, depending on their symptoms, if they're even if they still have um, if they're able to get up and and, you know go to work, they're going to do it um, because there is that need to survive.
3: Yeah, and another, I echo all those points that Miriam said, and another major issue is the dearth of transportation, private and public, to nearby hospitals and clinics. Like, a lot of rural areas where farm workers are and processing workers are don't actually have any hospitals. Um, Seth and I interviewed a group that is advocating for a hospital in a town that houses 25,000 farm workers, and there are Um, there's not a single hospital there. And they describe the situation as dry. They describe their community as being dry tinder in the path of the wildfire that's COVID-19. And unfortunately, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, which is the group of tomato pickers that's trying to get a alternative um, field hospital, received a response from the county government and the Florida Department of Health that told them that the concept of a field hospital has been evaluated, but determined unnecessary at this time. So they're still looking for a lot of public support to make this happen.
1: What about in this specific time? I don't know if you know the answer to this, but um, you know, there's a lot of talk about for the general population, testing has to be free for this virus. Um, tr- they're saying treatment has to be free. Um, in the case of let's say undocumented migrant farm workers who get sick, I mean, what are their options?
2: Sure. So, um, as Miriam mentioned, the vast majority of uh, farm workers don't have any health insurance. The last estimate that I saw was under 15%. Um, so, they're, if if they have health needs, if they get sick, they're dependent on nonprofit clinics or federally qualified health centers, or maybe they're somewhere where there just isn't any health care available. Um, so, that's uh, you know we need medical care for everyone um really ideally we need something like medicare for everyone um, because otherwise there are always loopholes even within the affordable care act the affordable care act increased health insurance rates for most people but actually in in many um, categories of immigrants it decreased health insurance rates because Many categories of immigrants, including some categories of authorized immigrants were explicitly excluded from the Affordable Care Act as a part of the negotiation for it to get through. Um, So while it was a great plan that we should keep or greatly change toward Medicare for All um, and not go back to an entirely employer-based system, um, it hasn't been great for farm workers. we've been talking with farm workers about the protections they've been offered. And so far the protections have been the piece of paper that says they're essential. So the farm workers I know have been wearing bandanas over their faces, but that's just of their own accord to protect themselves. They haven't been provided with any kinds of masks or gloves or anything. Um, And they're also a little bit nervous about wearing Bandanas because um, in some parts of, in many parts of the country, they already receive um, uh, racist statements from people. And if they have a bandana on, their experience is that they might be targeted or even more. Um, But the thing that's been um, hopeful at the same time is that several immigrant groups from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, to Venceremos, um, to Migrant Justice, to Pecun in Oregon, to the United Farm Workers nationally, to um, Familias Unidas por la Justicia in Washington state, to the um, Frente Indígena de Organizaciones Binacionales are all, um, and many more, a group called Cosecha, um, a group called Undocu805, um, they're all putting out uh, proposals and plans and demands um, you know if we are community if they they're saying if we are communities of people providing you with food you need to not just um, value our labor you also need to value our lives because you're dependent on us and we're we're in relation with each other we're working our work makes your life and your health possible in the in this pandemic and always and um you know, you need to respect us and, um, we need, uh, protections for our labor and protections for our health at the same time. So I, I think one of the things that we tried to focus on in the article that's coming out this week that Vera, um, lead authored was the ways in which farm worker organizations really need to be listened to at this moment because they are making statements. They are making proposals. They are, um, you know, making plans for better outcomes during this pandemic and afterward.
0: In regards to the question about um, access to healthcare, I also wanted to add that um, in the American article of public, the American Journal of Public Health article, rather, um, that we published, we also um, discussed how these rates are sowing in com- distrust in communities, and research has shown that. If communities uh, fear raids, they're not likely to go seek care. Um, so that's another added barrier to not just not only having health insurance and not having access to, um, access to care, but even if you have access to a doctor, um, you may not seek to go. To, you may not go get treatment because you fear that you might be deported while you're there. Um, even though ICE has uh, stated that they won't be um, deporting people to seek medical care unless it's a very unique um, situation because uh, rates are still happening. And because we are sort of seeing um, mixed messages coming from the government, I still uh, think that this is impacting the perceptions that people have, even though i has a statement that people do have fear of being deported when they go to the clinic, when they go to the hospital, um, which will put people at risk for not getting the treatment that they need, um, not just themselves, but their family members, their neighbors, and the rest of um, people that they come in um, physical contact with. Um, so I think that's also something that's super important and a strong argument to why um, great or non-essential at this time period.
1: So let's focus on the, that issue of the food itself, what's going to happen to food production on these farms, which is the topic of the the upcoming Guardian article that uh, Vera and Seth co-wrote. So can you tell us a little bit about what that situation looks like?
3: Yeah. So the question is, Very simple. We're looking at when you don't protect essential workers who pick, process, and pack our food, what happens to our supply chain and all of us? So as Seth had mentioned earlier, the Department of Homeland Security earlier this month had classified farm and other food workers as essential. They're part of the, quote, critical infrastructure workforce that has a, quote, special responsibility to maintain a normal work schedule. And though their designation as essential workers is apt, the release measures, recognizing their importance are not commensurate to the risks that they're taking. Um, earlier, we talked about the many things, the many protections and resources and provisions that workers are doing without. They're going without gloves, masks, hand sanitizer. They lack health care and child care. They lack protections like six feet of social distancing. They're lacking fair compensation in the form of hazard pay. Um, so food and farm workers have been left out of not only federal aid but also state aid and meanwhile osha the occupational safety and health administration which is in charge of health and safety of workers throughout the country says that it's helpless even though congress has um, given it an obligation to keep workers safe from grave danger so our article calls for protections we call on the public businesses states and especially the federal government for resources to support workers lives which would then support our food supply and support our national interest. So we, the article basically issues a dire warning. If we don't protect workers immediately, we're not going to have enough food for anyone, and an unprecedented national hunger crisis could be looming.
1: Uh, Seth, did you want to add anything to that and maybe uh, talk a little bit more about uh, what you mentioned about the workers themselves the farm workers they have their own kind of list of demands that they've been you know saying this is what we need so um, maybe you can share some of those with us
2: i'll speak a little more generally and then um, maybe vera could talk about some of the um, proposals and lists of demands um, with the groups uh, that she works closely with also um, there so in general there's this uh, There are always For a long time has been this irony that all of our health is dependent on the work the bodies um, of Farm workers who harvest who plant food who tend the crops who harvest the food um, Who process it etc food chain workers in general and yet? They've been excluded from many forms of labor protection health protections um, health insurance provision and um, during this pandemic, it becomes even more harmfully ironic where they're given a piece of paper that says they're essential, but they're not given health insurance coverage during this time or ever. Um, and they're not. They're, the way that they work isn't changed at all for them to be able to physically distance. Um, and they're not protected from the possibility of raids. Um, Uh, by immigration agents etc so that irony of one group of people's health being harmed and put at risk for everyone else's health to be raised and protected is very painful it's a relationship we're all in every time we eat any fruits or vegetables we're in a relationship with the people who provide that to us Every time we eat any food, we're in a relationship with food chain workers, many of whom are immigrants, not all of whom are. And so somehow we as a society, as a country, need to respect that relationship. We need to recognize that one of the last people who handled the fruit or vegetables or the other food that we're eating is an immigrant, is a food chain worker. We need to value their work. We need to treat them with respect. We need to protect them so that they are protected as human beings, but and also so our food system is protected, and we can we can continue to be able to eat. Um, and Dira, could you talk a little bit more about some of the other um, demands that Venceremos and Migrant Justice have been
3: proposing? Um, Micro Justice is a dairy worker-led organization based in Vermont, and they're pressing the state to include workers' needs in their crisis response. Vencedemos is a group of poultry workers that are petitioning that companies like Tyson and Cargill, all the major um, poultry processing companies, provide something really simple, which is sick leave. Um, and I guess just like one thing that I'll say about this, what Seth is talking about in terms of worker participation is. My research at Berkeley focuses on worker-led movements for social change, and I've been specifically studying a model that was designed by this group of tomato pickers that I mentioned, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, called Worker-Driven Social Responsibility. And the premise is really powerful. Workers are experts in their own conditions, they're experts in the problems that they face, they're experts in the abuse that they experience, and they're therefore experts in solutions to those problems. So the idea is that we should listen to their calls to action and take them seriously. So in our investigations, a dairy worker told Seth and I, the worker community is afraid. Farmers are worried. No one is going to replace us when workers get sick. Notice that it's not if workers get sick, it's when workers get sick. Um, And the outcome of this is tragically simple. Some workers are already starting to die and that a danger to workers is a danger to everybody.
2: Well, one of the Farmworker worker um, organizers who we spoke with also said, um, people want our labor, but they don't want our lives. And I think that that quote highlights how painful and harmful the reality is of someone's work being deemed essential and actually being essential for all of us to be able to live. And yet their bodies, their health, their future not being supported, not being protected. I think it's it's time for us as a society, as a country to understand how interlinked and how much of a relationship we have with food chain workers and with immigrants um, overall and to shift our priorities to respect that.
3: Yeah. This- worker was describing how the injustice of the system is being completely laid bare for everyone to see and it ties with the irony that Seth Seth was talking about in terms of putting workers with underlying chronic health conditions but without social safety nets in the front lines of battle and putting our lowest paid most vulnerable workers there to try to feed all of us.
1: And then Miriam, did you have any last
0: thoughts? I do think that for a really long time a lot of um, immigrant rights Movements have focused on um, pushing this narrative to, you know, tell people that immigrants can contribute to the U.S. and they're, you know, getting college educated and they're doing these things to sort of um, help us move forward in society. And for a long time, working class immigrants weren't really included in that narrative. We were hearing from dreamers who. Um, went to college and, you know, were becoming doctors or becoming lawyers or becoming writers. And that's why immigrants are so important. And now during this pandemic, we're hearing more why the farm workers um, who are undocumented are so important, why um, people who are working in sanitation are so important, why immigrants who are working in um, warehouses, shipping our boxes to our homes are so important or working in the packing industries are so important. And I'm personally hoping that this pandemic um, helps us all realize why, how we're all connected and why each member in our society plays a specific role. Um, and you don't necessarily have to have a college education or have aspirations to be a doctor, to be someone that's worthy of um, access to resources in the US. Um, And I really hope that this makes people sympathetic to the situations that immigrants are having to endure always, not just during a pandemic, but it's definitely been elevated during this time period.
1: And that concludes this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank our guests, Seth Holmes, who is a cultural and medical anthropologist and physician, Miriam Magana-Lopez, who is a research and policy analyst at the Institute for the Study of Societal Issues, and Vera Chang, a doctoral student in the Environmental Science Policy and Management Program at UC Berkeley. For links to their articles mentioned in this interview, and for a transcript of this episode, visit our website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash whobelongs. Thank you for listening.